And when you look at the remainder of Mahayana philosophy, you'll find that it's various attempts to work out this particular problem. How do you put these two very, teach- very different teachings together in a way that makes sense, in a way that doesn't do, do, doesn't do violence to one or the other? But before we go on to the next chapter, we stop for a commercial break. Any questions? <laughs> yes, Lee. So Nagarjuna was the first century AD, right? Or second century AD? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what was, when was the time of the 25,000 line perfection of wisdom? Nobody knows for sure. Okay. But um, it seems to be written in a later style. So the indications would be it was post Nagarjuna. Yeah. In terms of the chronology, I've, I've mixed up the chronology a little bit. The 8,000-line version comes first. Nagarjuna comes next. Doesn't mention anything about this teaching at all. And then the 25,000-line version comes along and tries to put the two of them together. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? Yes, way in the back. Since generosity is the first parami, mm-hmm. and there's such a such an emphasis on it, uh, how did this idea of merit become so distorted um, to get people? Excuse me. In the Apadana literature. Yeah, this, I, I'm I'm curious how merit making merit became. Something so sounding com- sounding so commercial, as opposed to eliciting someone's good nature. Uh-huh. Well, it's a little of both. Um, it is commercial, and it is trying to elicit their good nature. Uh, one of the nice things about the Apadana texts is that you don't have to be wealthy in order to make those, that gift. I mean, that's what, that's part of the spirit of the original teachings that they maintain. If you're a poor person, all you have to do is you know, bow down, take the five precepts. That's considered an act of service and it's perfectly good for getting you started on the, on the path to awakening. Um, the sleazy side is that and they really are trying to get people to make donations to the monasteries. You know? um, and there's a certain kernel from the early, the early texts that they build on, which is that the quality and sort of the karmic reward that comes from an act of generosity depends on several things. One of them is your state of mind, your motivation while you're doing it. The second is the article itself that you're given. It has to, giving it has to be something you actually got in a fair way. You didn't steal it. You didn't you know, cheat somebody else out of it in order to give it and make merit. And then the third element is the sort of the the level of attainment of the person who's receiving the item, receiving the item. And so in the Apadana text, they place all the emphasis on that last, that last quality. But, um, I mean, you see this even today. There's a movement in Thailand called Dhammakai. And they, um, it's kind of like Apadana Buddhism revived in big time. They have this whole series of uh, programs where you know if you if you vow to give I think what is a thousand baht a month, or look, that you can guarantee that you'll be reborn as a millionaire every lifetime between now and Nirvana. Mm-hmm. 
Or a while back they had a program, you know, buy your housing plot in heaven. <laughs> Make a down payment here. <laughs> and it's the same sort of teaching, you know, you know, it's promising huge rewards for a little bit of donation right now. My feeling was, that, yeah, as the monasteries got more and more well endowed, and you got the monks who were growing up in the monastery, their big concern was how do we keep the money coming in? Um, you see this in other Buddhist texts that were written about, around about the same time. There's one that threatens that anybody who destroys a mon- cuts a monastery tree or destroys a monastery wall is going to be reborn as a tree or a stone in the next lifetime. And that's, that's taking the doctrine of rebirth in a really new direction. <laughs> Once you get born as a stone, how do you get out of that? Right? <laughs> You'd have good concentration. Strong, well, uh-huh. <laughs> that's like the myth of the concentrated cat. You know? How many times do you read, in our Zendo, our best meditator is Sangamita, the cat. You know? I don't buy that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Any other questions? A question over here? Um, just a question. You mentioned that uh, Nagarjuna's um, position of conventional truth uh, mm-hmm. and ultimate truth mm-hmm. derive from a view of no self. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and I'm just, but that's not really referred to in the Pali Canon, no. the, those two truths. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm wondering how that does or does not relate to just the, the references to like, uh, the conditioned and the unconditioned or the fabricated and the unfabricated that you see a little bit of in the Pali Canon? That's, it's a different issue entirely. Totally different. Totally different. It's not related at all. I mean, for the, the descriptions in the Canon about fabricated and unfabricated, those are two different levels of experience. Conventional and ultimate, those are two different levels of language. It's how you talk about things. And so it's a different issue entirely. I've been saying tremendously controversial things right here and nobody seems to be (laughs) 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 complaining. (laughs) No (laughs) Mahayanas. move a little bit into later Mahayana thought. As I said, the big issue was how to put these two teachings together, the non-arising of dharmas and the lack of self-nature in dharmas. Um, You'll find that there are lots of different ways of putting it together, but there's one element that they all have in common, is that the ultimate nature of truth is that nothing arises and nothing passes away. We try to bring the mind to a state of non-dual awareness which is also called suchness, and as we'll see pretty soon, it has has given a lot of other names. Um, This, however, raises the question, since in the the early canons they say that everything that arises and passes away is suffering and stress, what is the status of suffering and stress in the new teachings? Does it really not happen at all? Is it just words? Um, In the... Prajna Bhattamita in 25,000 lines, they address this issue a little bit when they say that, on the one hand, that the Bodhisattva develops the perfection of discernment, 
seeing both of these meanings of emptiness, but at the same time does not abandon compassion for living beings. And the ability to hold these two totally contradictory notions in mind is part of the bodhisattva's tactical skill. That's a different kind of tactical skill than we saw in the 8,000. There was the ability to make a lot of merit and not have it yield in Buddhahood too fast. Here it is, holding this whole issue, okay, if suffering is not real and yet you can still have compassion. I mean, that's that's a major paradox. And they say this is this is going to be this is the issue that separates the sheep from the goats. Anyone who sees that this is a really true paradox and makes no sense at all to deny suffering and yet to feel compassion, they're going to stay stuck in the Hinayana uh, tradition, like all of us here. <laughs> but if you're not deterred by that paradox, and they say, then you can be, become a bodhisattva. Okay. But this really does, this is this is a major shift in the Buddha's teachings. Because as we said, the whole point of the early teachings is to focus specifically on this issue. So, you know, suffering and stress are a noble truth. And it's a problem that has to be addressed. It's so important that you have to abandon all other problems to focus on this. Whereas in, in the teachings of starting with the Ashta and moving on through the rest of the Mahayana that builds on the Ashta, suffering and stress are not really real. And then the question is, okay, if they're not really real, then what are we doing? So that's, um, and to sort of give you a little preview of what we're going to run into, it changes the whole image of the magic show. Before you see that you see that the rising and passing way of things is just like a magic show, there's nothing of any worth there, you drop that, and the mind turns to the deathless. Sound? Sound went off? Back on? Okay. Yeah, okay. About the magic show, okay. In the Pali Canon and in Nagarjuna, the magic show is seeing that things arise and pass away without any real substance. Because there's no real substance, you, the mind will then turn to something that has genuine substance okay. and stay there. In Mahayana, the idea is that you get into the state of the non arising of Dharma, this non dual consciousness. And you basically want to stay there, but you can, you can t- continue acting. Basically, it, to get there, you have to see through the magic show. Once you've seen through the magic show and you've gotten to the state of non-dual awareness, then you turn around and then you continue being a magician for other people. However, the magic work that you do now is to help them become bodhisattvas as well. So it's a whole different use of the image of the magic show. In the one, you want to stop the magic show. and the other one, you want to learn to become a magician. It's a, new, it's a whole new, new ball game. Let's put it that way. The other issue that comes up about this whole approach from the Theravada point of view is there are passages in the canon, and I put them in the readings. I don't know if we're ever going to get to look at the readings, but maybe we will. Where the Buddha talks about non-dual consciousness as being one more thing that is stressful. You get there, and there's still impermanence, and there's still stress, and there's still, still that too has to be abandoned. So the question is, the Mahayana take is that by getting to this non-dual awareness, they've gone beyond anything that the Theravadans can do or the Hinayanas can do. From the Hinayana point of view, they say maybe they haven't. Maybe they've just gotten to the state of non-dual consciousness and refuse to look for any stress or suffering there. 
So maybe they haven't gone beyond. So that's the big question mark we place in there. I must admit, I had one experience one time several years back. I had to give a, an address to a, a group of people that had been organized by a Tibetan organization down in um, Long Beach. And they'd asked me to t- talk about the Four Noble Truths. And so we talked about the Four Noble Truths and get to right, con- right concentration and talk about jhana. And explain that when you get into the fourth jhana, the breathing stops. And there's just full body awareness, totally still. And they came up afterwards and say, gee, we thought you guys couldn't do that. <laughs> Meditation where the breath stops, we thought that was a Mahayana attainment. Well, okay. so. <laughs> so maybe I have a grudge here, I don't know. <laughs> At any rate. Because <clears throat> not only do you have the problem that they say that this is the ultimate you get to, they discourage any attempt to analyze this non-dual consciousness. They try to create a devotional attitude towards it. Um, They give it all kinds of really cool names. And they say, okay, once you get there, learn just to course in that, but don't look for any of the three characteristics because they say you won't find them. But they discourage you from trying. Whereas Theravada encourages you to look for anything that comes up. You always look to see if there are any of the three characteristics. At any rate, Attempts to make, to bridge this problem about the the two types of teachings on emptiness fall into two camps. One is sutras. These are um, dialogues that, excuse me, are attributed to the Buddha. And then there are philosophers who are speaking in their own voice. Let's go through the sutras first. There are three main, actually four main sutras that we're going to cover here. The first is called the Sandhi Nirmochana, S-A-N-D-H-I, N-I-R-M-O-C-A-N-A, Sandhi Nirmochana, means the resolution of enigmas. Okay, and this particular sutra is, tries to put these two teachings, teachings together by postulating what they call our three svapavas, or three own natures. But it was actually three different ways of saying that things are empty, or dharmas are empty. This is one of those things, okay, class, get your notes out, get your pet pens down, let's, let's copy these down. Okay, there's three levels of emptiness. Things are empty in their own nature in terms of their origination, in terms of their characteristic and in ultimate terms. Origination, characteristic, and in ultimate terms. First, in terms of the characteristic, this is following Nagarjuna. They're empty of own nature because they're not self-caused, but they're dependent on other things. This means they have no inherent existence. That's the teaching, that's basically what's borrowed from Nagarjuna. Secondly, borrowing from the perfection of discernment, and the Ashta in particular, the distinguishing characteristics of dharmas, like when you see blue or you see red, 
or there's anything that you can identify a particular dharma as something, that's simply a word. It's just a linguistic convention. Like all these things that we see arising and passing away, it's just words. So these, to be empty in terms of their distinguishing characteristics means that these characteristics ultimately don't exist. They don't really arise, don't really pass away. It's just words. And then the third point, and this is where the resolution of enigmas claims to be breaking new ground. Okay, when dharmas are purified of what this is called the second characteristics, the imagined characteristic, then what remains is the perfected. In other words, all you have to do is just wipe away the names off of things and you're already there at the pure, the perfected suchness. And what this means is it's empty of those words that you that you applied to them before. In other words, what this means is that when the Buddha is talking in terms of dependent co-arising, okay, what he's describing there is only a linguistic convention. The things that seem to arise and pass away, the, the birth, the aging, the illness, the death, craving, feeling, all these other things, these are only linguistic conventions that we've put on the stream of experience. But the stream of experience itself, the, those conventions don't apply. So the suchness of experience, you don't have, an, you don't have those names. And so all you have to do is peel away the linguistic conventions and there you, there you are, you have suchness. Now the reason they have this teaching is they say this is what distinguishes bodhisattvas from arahants. Arahants see that they're suffering in this world and therefore they, they try to get rid of everything. Whereas the bodhisattvas to be see that there's, it's the only problem is the linguistic conventions that you apply to things. When you peel those away then what's left is, is already pure. Like your experience, they say the nature of your experience that you have here is already pure. All you have to do is peel away the linguistic conventions on top of that. And you're there. You've achieved that state of no thoughtness, the state of suchness. What's good about this from the Mahayana point of view is that it allows you not to go into a nirvana where you've, you've basically you're pulled out of the game. You stay in touch with experience, but then you're no longer deluded by the, the linguistic conventions that you that you that you used to put place on things. So that's one way of trying to put those two teachings together. Another way of trying to put them to teach, put them together is what eventually got called Buddha nature. Um, the Sanskrit term is Dathagata Garbha. And you find this teaching in a whole slew of sutras. There's one that's called the Dathagata Garbha. It's, the Garbha is spelled G-A-R-B-H-A. And in just a minute we'll talk about what that means. There's the lion's roar of Queen Srimala. And there's a Mahayana Mahabharata Nirvana Sutta. And what they do is they say that this suchness that you're trying to get to, that's Buddha nature. That's the, that's the Buddha potential that lives in, in every being. 
It's the potential that remains after everything else is abandoned, awakening. The word garba here has two meanings. One, it's a fetus, and two, it's a womb. So you've got the Buddha fetus, or you've got the Buddha womb. And it's illustrated with a series of similes. Okay? One, it's like an excellent child in the womb of a poor woman. In other words, it's the good part in you. Um, it's honey in a beehive, and it's gold fallen into mud. So what you're trying to do is take the part of your experience that's constructed imaginary and sort of peel that away and get to the gold that's in this mud of your ordinary mind. Some of these similes, like the honey or the gold, suggest something that's already pure. This Buddha nature inside you is already pure. You don't have to do anything about it. Just clear away the mud or give birth to the child. Excuse me, the honey or the gold. As for the child, it suggests something that needs to be nurtured and grown. You've got a potential, but the potential has to be nourished alone before it's going to show itself. And some of the other analogies, like the womb itself, suggest the nurturing power in you that's going to give rise to your awakening. So you've got three kinds of messages that you can get out of this. Either there's something already pure inside you and all you have to do is peel away so the, the defilements and find the pure thing that's right there. The second one is that there's something in you that you've got to nurture, that you've got to develop and grow. And the third is you've got this nurturing power inside you that's going to give rise to the awakening. And as if you look into much later Mahayana thinking, especially when you get to Japan, you have different schools of thought that took one of each of those three aspects of the image. Either there's something already pure in you, you don't have to do anything to it, just admit, you just realize the purity and there you are. The other say, now there's something there, but you've got to develop it. It's not automatically pure. Now the question comes, this, this thing about there being this ontological or metaphysical principle that's inside each person, this Buddha nature and this Buddha garbha, the Tagata Garva. Somebody must have said, hey, this sounds like a permanent self. This is your true nature. This is what you really are. Doesn't this sound like a self? And the different sutras said, yeah, that's your true self. They sort of thumbed their nose at everybody. Others said, well, no, that's not really yourself because it's impersonal and universal. It's something that we all have in common. My Buddha nature isn't any way different from your Buddha nature. It's all connected. That was one of the answers. Then someone else come along and says, well, the Buddha said even a, even a common self like that you know, still counts as a view of self. We've still got a problem here. But the people who advanced this teaching said, look, if, if dharmas are just arising and passing away and that's all they are, okay, what is there in a human being that would even want to get away from suffering? You've got to have something in there to account for the desire to escape from suffering. That's what they said. And this is the problem you get into. Once you say there's no self, you screw yourself up thoroughly. Just as you get yourself, 
just as soon as you say there is a self, you get screwed too. I mean, it's, 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 the Buddha was wise. <laughs> Stay away from that topic. At any rate, <clears throat> the, the complaint that the Tathagata Garva was, was a, a self-view of one kind or another obviously needed some kind of response. And so it, the, the response that really took hold was something that was formulated in another sutra called the Lankavatara. I'll spell that for you. L-A-N-K-A. V-A-T-A-R-A. Lankavatara says basically all these different teachings that you get in both in the Hinayana, as I call them, and the Mahayana sutras, sutras have to be understood with the analogy of the Buddha as a doctor. Okay? The different teachings are there as different kinds of medicine. And they serve different purposes. If you have a particular problem with a practice, you get a particular kind of medicine. If you don't have that problem, that medicine is not for you. Okay. And so, for example, it says that the, the teaching of the Tathagata Garbha and the teaching of not self are both forms of medicine. Ultimately, when you hit true awakening, you will abandon all the medicines, all views of all kinds. But you learn to use these other things as um, techniques and, and skillful means in the meantime. This teaching is straight from the Pali Canon. The image of the Buddha as a, tatar, as a, as a doctor, the, the idea that the raft is something that you abandon when you hit the other shore. This is all stuff straight from the Pali Canon. But the Lankavatara takes it to include you know, all these various Mahayana teachings as well. For example, it says the teaching on not-self is there to discourage attachment the teaching on the Tathagata Garbha is there to dis- is there to encourage people who are get scared off by the not self teaching. One. Also, the type of person who says, "I don't have it in me to gain awakening." The Tathagata Garbha says, "Look, everybody has it in them." Now, from from our point of view, the question is, do you need the Tathagata Garbha to get that message across? That's questionable. At any rate. The Lankavatara, however, introduces a new teaching of its own, which it calls the storehouse consciousness. Um, this is based on an old image from, from the Pali Canon, or the early canons, is that when you perform an action, like, a, and if you perform, it, perform an act of karma, it's like a seed. And these seeds get carried on, and they finally yield their fruit. Now the question is, okay, what carries the seeds? If a person is just dharmas arising and passing away, there's nothing in there to carry the seeds of karma. So what you need is a storehouse for the seeds. And they say this is a this is a type of consciousness. The explanation is that moments of consciousness at the eye, ears, etc., are too short to carry on the simultaneous functions of registering sense impressions and passing on karmic seeds at the same time. So you need this other mental function to serve this purpose. So basically they say is the storehouse consciousness receives the seeds from the acts of the mind faculty and then transmits them to the consciousness of the six senses. This is a psychological explanation of karma. It's all purely in the mind. When you think that's, that intention is the karma, that seed gets placed in your storehouse consciousness and then bears, bears fruit later on in your consciousness again. What this means is, in terms of the emptiness teaching, it means that dharmas of experience possess no own nature because they're caused by the mind and they're made of the mind. They're mere constructs of consciousness. In other words, there's nothing out there behind them, there's nothing in here behind them. 
there's no object that you're really that's really causing you to see things, and there's no you in there that's causing that's looking at things. It's just these mental events that get registered, get stored for a while, and then finally come out again. And it also says that the second function of this particular storehouse consciousness is that when you say that dharmas don't don't arise, it doesn't mean that don't happen. It simply means they don't happen outside the mind. It's all purely intramental. They don't refer to any extramental reality at all. For example, the experience of a color is to be viewed just as an experience and not as a representation of anything out there. What's interesting here is when they talk about this storehouse consciousness, when they actually get down to the analogies they use to explain things, and I always find it interesting to look at the analogy, because that shows kind of the structure of their thinking, what the, what the abstractions are all about. They don't use any storehouse analogy at all. They talk about the ocean. They say the water in the ocean is inherently pure. Okay? Karmic impulses are like waves in the ocean. And they're not identical with the water, nor are they separate from it. They stir up the water and make it murky. The ocean is momentary in the sense that when there are waves, it is never still, even for a moment. But inherently, it is not momentary, for it's always water. And not even the murkiness can turn it into non-water. Okay, when you understand experientially that all the contents of your experience are simply mind-made, this brings an end to impure karmic impulses, which are based on the assumption that objects in your experience have an existence out there. <clears throat> but when these impure impulses are pacified, that's like the stilling of the waves that made the water murky. What remains is the water together with waves that are free from murkiness. In other words, if it were just still water, then you become an you become an arahant, and that would be the end of the issue. But they say you still need waves, but you now you have waves that don't make the water murky. This state is neither empty nor non-empty, for while it is empty of defiling waves, it is not empty of pure water and pure waves. That's their image for this storehouse consciousness. It's the waves in the ocean. Now, there's some question here of whether this qualifies as what we would nowadays call idealism, the idea that there's nothing out there, and it's all in the mind. Or since the whole thing was introduced with the idea that all these teachings aren't just skillful means, maybe it's just a skillful means. And then even the image of the water and the image of the storehouse consciousness is going to get dropped at awakening. So that's, that's quite a lot to cover right there. Any, can we stop for a few questions? Way over here. Um, to back to the idea of um, conventional versus ultimate reality, which I think a couple of times now you've said is just a linguistic convention. It's mm -hmm. just a way of talking about things. Mm -hmm. And yet it seems to me that it maps well onto the distinction that they're making um, between there is no suffering. Mm -hmm. and the appearance of suffering. Mm -hmm. And that those, those it's like there, there is no suffering is the ultimate reality and the appearance of suffering is the conventional reality. And yet I don't see that, um, that idea as just a linguistic distinction. It's, an, it's a distinction in the experience. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I wondered if you could comment about that okay. a little bit. The distinction starts off in the Abhidhamma as a purely linguistic experience. When you get into the Mahayana, they're talking about two levels of reality. So, so what you're saying then is that in, in the Mahayana, it's not simply a linguistic distinction. It's actually a distinction of levels of, levels of experiencing and levels the of reality. The problem is that the conventional level of, ex- of reality is just linguistic. That, yeah, that's what I understood for yeah. a moment when you yeah. said you could strip away the linguistic conventions, you'd be in the suchness. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's more. Th- it, it seems it seems more than just linguistic, because mm-hmm. you can experience. I mean, if you're if you're outside of thought, you can still be experiencing um, arising and passing. You don't. I mean, you don't have to have thoughts. And not having thoughts in your minds doesn't mean that you're in that. Uh, place of not seeing arising and passing necessarily, and you can you can be in the place of no thoughts. Do you really have no see. thoughts? Hmm? Do you really have no thoughts in that? Well, I, I guess it depends on what you define as a thought. Uh-huh. I mean, they're talking about no mentation at all. Yeah. Okay. And that would include just even just bare perception. But then, again, we're, we're talking about. If you try to conceive of the Mahayana as this monolithic approach, it gets very, very confusing. But if you see, okay, there are different types of Mahayanas coming at this from different angles, then you have to define the terms for each of the particular approaches. Like for the, for the Ashta, they said it's just that, it's just words. Strip away the words, you're fine. And some of these other ones will also make that same distinction. It's just words. Whereas, say for the, the Lankavatara, they say, okay, you actually do experience the suffering, but it's not relevant to anything outside of your mind. It's all purely internal process. And seeing that, seeing that there's, there's nothing outside there or nothing inside here, it's just this, this sort of the surface between the two. That in and of itself is suchness, or the attainment of suchness. That help? <laughs> okay. What really struck me was the last image we talked about was the ocean and the mm. waves. And it reminded me of the first image six hours ago when we talked about coming into this room mm. and the room is emptiness until mm-hmm. we project our intention into it. Mm-hmm. And so the ocean is flat until we project our waves mm-hmm. onto it. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm really understanding what. <laughs> Why the Buddha said don't go there? Yeah, you know because the words just catch us circling around on everything mm-hmm. on everything but suffering. Mm-hmm. It's, it seems to me. I mean, because this idea that um, achieving, you know, achieving the flat ocean, like you still have to maintain the flat ocean, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's usually, that that's a stress too. That's a problem with the analogies, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure but yeah, really I mean, if I have a question other than it, the I've, I've also kind of gotten acquainted um, with Joseph Goldstein in the One Dharma book and this whole, you know, like it's like choosing which softball team you're going to be mm-hmm. on, the Hinayana or the Mahayana when really what we want is the path. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I guess I wonder after a while, like where, where does all of this lead to? Okay. 
um, in terms of the study, the history. As I said, it's, it's, we're, we're on a decline and fall here. <laughs> um, I hope to spend the last part of the day going back over the Pali Canon again. But I, part of this is just to point out the wisdom. When the Buddha said, don't go to these questions, this is why. You know? Because it gets you more tangled up. Oh, she's already got it. She's next over here. Well, thank you. Um, I have a question about something you touched on briefly, uh, which was um, Buddha nature, mm-hmm. and that there is a strong school. I don't know whether you said which school that was that suggests that we each have it, mm-hmm. and that the fact that we each have it is um, the thing that makes the thing that suggests that, that we're not. Um, empty that we're right. not that we have some essence yeah. and I'm wondering how you feel about that I mean wh- wh- which of those camps are you in and can you say more about it neither neither <laughs> <laughs> because um, if you go into this with the idea that you've got some sort of inherent nature in there once you hit something that seems like that inherent nature you're going to stop if you go in this with the idea that you have no inherent nature, then the question is, well, why bother? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're stuck either way. Yeah. I mean, why sit here? Why don't we go out and have an ice cream cone and just forget about the whole thing? I mean, if there's no inherent nature here. Then <laughs> but if you have an inherent nature, you're going to get stuck on whatever it is that you, seems to be an inherent nature. So the question is saying, just... Don't answer the question. Again, this is another application of the teaching on emptiness. Okay, focus on, okay, what am I doing that's causing suffering and stress? And learn how not to do that. And they, when, when they said, that they, said they called the, Buddhist, the early Buddhist teachings or Gamahwada, a teaching about action, this is precisely what it is. Look at your actions. Don't worry about essence or lack of essence. Okay. Just learn to be more skillful in what you do. Okay. Other questions? Yes, yeah, cool. Where's the traveling mic? What you just said um, made me reflect on a question I had earlier about who's, who's asking the question, mm-hmm. who's looking, who's wanting to know mm-hmm. uh, all these answers. And... Um, and then what you just said about it's the effort or the action uh, that seems to be what, if you will, um, is the underlying energy that brings us to awakening. It's the, it's the force within us that wants to know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I guess I, I, I also appreciate what you're saying. It's the, we can't, until you really know, you can't say you know. <laughs> and um, I don't know. I'm not making really clear uh, thoughts to come through yet, but it, it just seems that there's there seems that there's a path, and that path is what I hold on to, and I know that. And so all these other things seem to be distractions in some way. Right. And and yet 
I'm comforted by the fact that someone else is thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not only that, there are a few, a few people out there who found some really interesting things following this path. Yeah, so anyway, um, it's, uh, it's fun. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad you all are surviving this today. <laughs> It's about the Bodhisattva. I understand that in Burmese tradition there is a Bodhisattva Mm -hmm. tradition, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. that's also Theravada. Mm -hmm. So, and I didn't realize that there was such a strong distinction as the one that you've characterized today between Mm -hmm. those two. So, can you explain that to me? Well, back in the time of Xuanzang, when he was going through India, he noticed the different kinds of temples they had and different kinds of monasteries. And the basic distinction he made was between Mahayana and Hinayana. But he also had this third kind that nobody seems to ever really notice. He said there was the the Theravada Mahayana, Mm -hmm. which is different from the other kind of Mahayana. And the difference being was that the Theravada Mahayana stuck to the old idea that the difference between an Arahant and a Bodhisattva was quantitative. You make your vow and then you just make more merit, more perfections than the Arahant does and you become a Bodhisattva. You'll find this in all the Theravada countries today. Nobody goes around asking, are you, are, you, are you planning to be an Arahant? Are you planning to be a Bodha? Nobody asks that question because you look at it from the outside, it's the same practice. I mean, there, there are rumors about certain teachers or certain, certain kings in Thailand who wanted to be Bodhisattvas. But that's about it. But in terms of you know what they actually do and the as I said, the quality of the discernment they're trying to develop, the quality of the, of the other perfections, it's the same quality, it's just more of the same. Question? You talked about a while ago. You talked about suchness, and um, that has fled my mind. Could you just reiterate that a little bit, please? It's the idea of suchness <coughs> in the Ashta um, is that well, actually, the, the concept of suchness actually comes from the Pali Canon. But there, it means a mind that simply is the way it is. It's a description of the mind of the Arahant. The Arahant's mind is not changed or is not altered by anything. In the Mahayana, suchness is kind of just the to indicate that this is what it is, but you don't talk about any way of describing it. It has no characteristics, but it's directly experience, experienceable. Not in that way that it's such. You said it's experienceable, mm-hmm. but you can't really describe it or talk yeah. about it because mm-hmm. it really lacks characteristics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. But then they do say it does have the characteristic of being non-dual. I think I understand. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess I was wondering to what degree you, you felt that some of the Mahayana concepts are sort of reifications or, or objectifications of, of meditative experiences. And mm-hmm. So particularly we were just talking about Buddha nature and the universal form of Buddha nature. Mm-hmm. To what degree is that sort of a, a reification of the, the base of infinite consciousness or, or those sorts of things? Could easily be. You read the different descriptions and some of them sound like 
state of neither perception or non-perception, the, what they call the totality of non-dual consciousness. You know, there's the Theravada teaching on the luminosity of the mind. These could just be ways of putting names on those particular experiences for a particular purpose, because then they take the concept and then they put it, plug it into their particular approach. Like the Tathagata Garba there is basically there to encourage people to feel that, okay, they've, they've all got the potential. And also to explain why it is that people want to get, you know, get rid of suffering. The storehouse consciousness is a similar sort of thing. It's, it's, it's not only a, a meditative experience, but they take it and they put a name on it and they give it a role so it can function in a particular way in terms of how they think about what's going on in the path. Question of whether I'll, I'll just repeat the question. Okay. Okay. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I must admit that there are things that raise questions. You know, because the whole point of the Bodhisattva path. Although I've, I've, I talked to a friend the other day, who, um, you know, of all the Zen monks, the one I really like is Dogen. He said, that makes sense because he's the only Hinayana Zen master they have. <laughs> but the whole purpose of the Bodhisattva path, remember, in the Mahayana, is that you don't want to gain awakening this lifetime. Because you've, you know, you've got to become a Buddha and get your awakening some other lifetime. And so the purpose is to get to a state where you're, you know, you're sort of guaranteed that you're not going to fall off the path, but you're not going to try to get awakening right now. So there's always something left. There's always the idea that you've got to come back. You can't totally give up. And that, in, I, I know in some circumstances that could actually get in the way of somebody's having an awakening experience. They're afraid of going too far. But whether you have you know, bodhisattvas that happen to become arahants kind of despite themselves, I don't know. Really hard to say. I must admit, you know, I, I think of all the people who've been teaching Buddhism and you know throughout history, I think the Buddha did the best job. Mike, <laughs> 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 um, you addressed this a little bit earlier, but the original teachings of the Buddha. You know, there's a whole scholarship now around mm. the original sayings of Jesus mm. and early mm. Christianity. Can we approach that the same thing with the Buddha historically? Is there any way to know which of the suttas he probably really did say himself mm. and which are productions of later scholars? Okay. There have been a lot of attempts at that. Excuse me, let me get this closer up here. Um, most of the problem is that People tend to approach the issue with certain ideas in mind that the Buddha must have taught this way or a great religious teacher must have taught this way and anything that doesn't fit in with that must be later accumulation. That's not an objective method. Um, 
and the various ways that they've tried to make an objective method. One of the most interesting ones is that they can trace that there was a development of different styles of poetry writing. There were earlier styles and then later styles. And you can sort of classify the, the, po- the poem parts, the verse parts of the Pali Canon. The question is, they don't have any fixed dates for those styles. And I mean, someone just came up with the assumption that the really new sophisticated style must have come at the time of King Ashoka because that was when you know, Indian civilization became very sophisticated. That's not an argument. It's pretty, it's pretty vague. Um, the Buddha himself said that you, know, you start with the teachings that you know are his, which back in his days was easy. People who had met the Buddha, they could remember what he said. And then you hear, he said, if you hear anything new attributed to me, compare it with what you already know. Then from that, you can decide what fits and what doesn't fit. Okay, nowadays we don't have that technique. However, there's some passages that seem pretty pretty certain. I mean, the Four Noble Truths, the Wings to Awakening. You've got a lot right there. And then secondly, even then, though, the question is, how do you know what's the true Dharma? You've got to put it to the test. And he gives you a very specific way of putting it to the test. And you put it into practice and see, okay, does... How do my actions change? Do they change for the better or they change for the worse? Yeah, that's the test. So you can't just test the text, you also have to test yourself. And that's the best way of testing anything anyhow. Bonte, I may be really confused, but um, what I've heard today is you to say that the Buddha taught us the teaching on emptiness was to um, take a look inside ourselves and see what caused stress Mm -hmm. and to get rid of that. And that a lot of these philosophical, linguistic Mm -hmm. questions that come up for all of us um, causes stress, so mm-hmm. we should let go of that. Um, this may sound like the ultimate cynicism, but what are we all doing here? Rather than sitting on our cushions. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> We're here because there's a lot of stuff floating around in the air that some teachings are better than other teachings. And so, well, let's, let's just look, look at them for a day, okay? Then you go back to your cushion tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Let's break. <laughs>